The title of this morning's message is Perfect and Permanent. Hebrews chapter 7. Originally, I was planning to just go all the way through chapter 7. But about 11.30 last night, I figured out it wasn't going to happen. (laughs) But we'll get close. (laughs) In chapter 7 of Hebrews, the author presents several reasons why Jesus is a better high priest of a better priesthood than those of the Old Covenant. Both Jesus and his priesthood are perfect and permanent. And that which is perfect and permanent can lead us into having confidence. Confidence in who he is and what he has done. Giving us assurance that we indeed do have an everlasting righteousness. The Hebrew baby believers were questioning some of the realities of the new covenant simply because they were so ingrained in the law-based system of sin management. Having been there, (laughs) much of the church is too busy to help their neighbor because they're managing their sin. They're so busy trying to get right. At Karis, we would always start school with worship. And people would fall on their face and cry and beg and plead because they didn't think they were clean. So they would spend all of their worship trying to get something. (laughs) instead of setting their hearts on who he is and how much he loves them. The law causes you to constantly think you're lacking. It makes you think there's something really wrong with who you are. But grace gives us a realization that not only is Jesus perfect and permanent, (laughs) so are we. (laughs) so they had real questions and it makes sense because they had been taught their whole life that if life is hard you're probably doing something wrong (laughs) and there is a truth to that (laughs) so being persecuted on every side they had to ask the question Is it because I'm not keeping the law? Is it because I'm not keeping kosher? Is it because? And these were baby believers. (laughs) They didn't understand their righteousness. They didn't understand the new covenant. So they had just mushed it all together. And it doesn't work. (laughs) Mushing causes thwarting. It doesn't work. But they had real questions that they needed to have answered so that they could confidently let go of the requirements of the law and enter into the rest of faith. Even today, so many are like these Hebrew baby believers. They are stuck on the hamster wheel of religion. They believe it's their job to make themselves acceptable to God by doing the right things or by doing the religious things. Again, I was once very much like these Hebrew baby believers myself. I loved God with all of my heart, and I was full of the Holy Spirit, operating in the gifts and graces of the Holy Spirit, who was producing the fruit of the Spirit in my life. But I didn't understand my everlasting right standing, everlasting acceptance, (laughs) everlasting approval (laughs) from my Father. 
So I struggled with fear and doubt and unbelief and, of course, good old condemnation. (laughs) Condemnation will kill your faith. You will not be able to believe that God would be that good to you when you've been that bad. When we don't understand that we have this permanent acceptance and approval from God, it's then, when we understand it, that we can trust him. You see, we will not trust people we think are mad at us. You know how long I thought God was mad at me? (laughs) And you're trying to get faith to work? (laughs) You're trying to trust him? But you also, you're afraid. No, you need that fear of the Lord to keep you on the straight and narrow. No, you don't. (laughs) You need to understand that his grace, his absolutely free loving kindness, and his approval of you is all for free, and it's permanent. If we are not sure of our Father's complete acceptance of us, we will not be able to enter into the rest of faith. Brain won't let you. (laughs) I heard a good example of this kind of thing a couple of years ago. Matt Crouch from the TBN Network, on his program, he said that he was planning a trip to Israel way back when. And at that time, there was a lot of political unrest going on in the country with people setting off bombs and stuff. So his question to the Lord was, as he was preparing to go to Israel, was this, God, have I been good enough for you to be able to keep me safe? That is the American church. They're always asking God, am I good enough for you to bless me? Have I given enough for you to bless me? Have I loved enough for you to bless me? Never understanding that his blessing has nothing to do with what we've done or haven't done, but with who Jesus is and what he has done. This question revealed the truth that he actually believed at that time that God dealt with him based on his own actions and his own goodness, instead of on Jesus's actions and Jesus's goodness. And this is exactly where the Hebrew baby believers were at too. They had Jesus, but they weren't necessarily convinced that God was dealing with them based on Jesus's goodness and finished work. So they were contemplating trying to keep themselves safe from persecution by going back into Judaism and law-keeping for righteousness. So the author of Hebrews sets out to prove to his audience the validity of the new covenant way of righteousness, the new priesthood, and the validity of their new high priest. I will begin reading in chapter 6, starting with verse 13, and this section just sort of takes us right into chapter 7. It reminds us of God's unchangeableness, of his character, his promises, and his oaths, which lead us once again to the subject of Jesus as our great high priest. Beginning with Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by which to swear, he swore by himself. And technically, there was no good reason for God to swear an oath to his promise, because God is only faithful and good. So it was actually unnecessary on God's part, so to speak. But God found it necessary on Abraham's part. Abraham believed that God would keep his promises to him, which is why Abraham was able to lay Isaac on an altar. 
Because he just simply reckoned, well, if I kill him, then God's going to have to raise him up because he's the one that contains the promise. <laughs> That's pretty good faith. <laughs> but believing for something to come to pass in the future where you can't see it can make having confidence in God's promise more difficult. So God swore an oath to his promise, which enabled Abraham to believe the promise was irrevocable, which meant that there was nothing that Abraham could do to mess it up, and there was nothing Abraham could do to bring it to pass. Because it wasn't about what Abraham could do. It was a work of God's hands according to God's plans. Verse 14, saying, Surely I will bless and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, and the oath is final for confirmation. Way back then. <laughs> they swore by God. They expected if you swore by God, God would kill you <laughs> if you didn't follow through. <laughs> so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So the oath wasn't just for Abraham's sake, but it was also for these Hebrew baby believers, <laughs> and even for us today. We are the heirs of the promise. Verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things, the oath and the promise, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement, strong consolation to continue basically holding fast to the hope, the confident expectation of God's faithfulness to his words showing up in our life. And that, of course, is set before us. I like this verse also in the Passion Translation, so I have it for you. So it is impossible for God to lie, for we know that his promise and his vow will never change. And now we have run into his heart to hide ourselves in his faithfulness. And this is where we find his strength and comfort, for he empowers us to seize what has already been established ahead of time, an unshakable hope, an unshakable confidence in God's goodness, an unshakable confidence in God's approval of us, an unshakable <laughs> confidence. Verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as the forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, permanent, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus entered into the Holy of Holies for us. He was the forerunner. He took his work into the Holy of Holies. He didn't actually take his blood. We'll get to that in another message. But <laughs> he presented himself. <laughs> he presented us. He presented himself sinless and pure and perfect. And in him was humanity. So he went in and made the way open for everybody. Permanently. Permanently. We have permanent access to the Father. We have permanent access to the kingdom of God. We have permanent access to God's goodness and faithfulness. 
Now, it is this foreverness that the author leads into chapter 7. In chapter 7, the author is building the case for Christ as being a better high priest with a better priesthood because both are permanent. <laughs> they are indeed forever. Verse 1 of chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. The Old Testament Melchizedek was simply a type and shadow of the greater reality that would be found in Christ. Under the Old Covenant, these offices of priest and king were kept completely separate. Kings did not become priests, and if they did priestly things, they got in big trouble. <laughs> priests did not become kings. But in the order of Melchizedek, the high priest would also be a king and a priest. And we can see this, it was foretold in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 through 13. And say to him, thus says Yahweh of hosts, look, here is a man whose name is Branch, and from his place he will sprout, and he will build the temple of Yahweh. He will build the temple of Yahweh, and he will bear majesty, and will sit and rule on his throne. And he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two of them. Commentators said that the council of peace between the two of them can be understood one of two ways. One is between the offices. There is no difficulty with a, a priest being a king or a king being a priest. There is peace in both. Or we could simply say there would be peace between Yahweh and the branch, <laughs> the father and the son. So these two verses are considered and recognized to be messianic. So Jesus, as the Messiah, is also Jesus the branch, the shoot that comes out from the house of Jesse. And Jesus is the builder of the temple, which is the whole body of Christ, the church. And also Jesus is the king who bears royal honor and majesty and who sits on and rules from his throne, both as a king and as a priest. Now, it's odd enough for Jesus to be both king and priest, but what's even more odd is that even as a priest, Jesus sits. <laughs> Jesus sits as a priest upon the throne because all of the work of salvation is finished. The sin debt of mankind has been completely paid. So there are no more sacrifices for sin. It doesn't matter how many times you ask Jesus to forgive you. He's not going to die again to cover your sin. <laughs> Old Testament thinking, but so much of the church, that's why the baby Hebrew believers were thinking, I know he covered my sin yesterday, but what about today? Maybe a lamb would be good. <laughs> no, it's not good. <laughs> there were no more sacrifices for sin because Jesus already dealt with all sin. When we bring our quote-unquote sin to Jesus, he is not dealing with it. He might have a conversation with you about it. Why do you think you did that? <laughs> did that work out well for you? <laughs> but he's already dealt with the sin. Under the old covenant, sin brought separation. We don't have separation because God is not counting our sins against us. We live in a new covenant and in a new kingdom where sin doesn't stick. <laughs> it has no power to separate us from God. That's all Old Covenant 
thinking. Because there are no more sacrifices for sin, Jesus could sit down on his throne, period, because it's already all done. The Levitical priests never sat down. They were always really busy with the work of managing sin. (laughs) Sin management is exhausting. (laughs) And it doesn't work. So much of the church keeps begging God to do something that's already done. He's already forgiven it. Now he just wants to have a discussion about it. (laughs) So under the old covenant, everything, everything was temporary and incomplete. It never did what God's heart wanted for his people. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2. And to him, the old covenant, Melchizedek, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So here the author tells us the order in which we should interpret Melchizedek's name. The first place goes to king of righteousness, and the second place goes to king of peace. And that makes perfect sense, because if you have the king of righteousness, (laughs) you will have the king of peace. You can't get to peace apart from righteousness. That's the point. That's why he says, I'm going to tell you how to think about this. (laughs) Righteousness is what gives us peace with God. And that peace only comes by accepting the king of righteousness and his perfect sacrifice that brings both perfect righteousness and perfect peace between God and man. So Jesus is the substance the reality, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, Melchizedekian type and shadow of the one who was to come. Also, Abraham was not under a commandment to tithe. He didn't have to give Melchizedek anything. Instead, his offering would have been given to the priest as a thanksgiving offering to God. What was he thankful for? The battle he just won. (laughs) All the loot they stole from everybody else. (laughs) His offering is a thanksgiving offering for the victory. Abraham and his 300 men did not overcome five different kings. (laughs) God overcame the five kings in and through Abraham. So it was a completely voluntary demonstration of worship and thanksgiving to God through God's priest, Melchizedek. My point is this. Abraham didn't have to give God anything. God didn't require anything of Abraham. He could have kept all the spoils of war. But Abraham wanted to honor God with a tenth because by doing so, he is recognizing the true source of the victory. It is, thank you for this victory. I want to demonstrate that I appreciate we're all alive. (laughs) I appreciate that you came to our rescue. I appreciate that I have recovered a lot. And I want to thank you. I want to demonstrate my thankfulness. That's a good offering message. (laughs) Verse 3. For he, the Old Testament Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, when you look at that, if you take it literally, you're thinking, what? 
<laughs> what are you saying about this guy? I believe he was just a guy. He was a, a mere man. He wasn't Christ incarnate. It wasn't a theophany. It was Melchizedek. He was a real guy. But in Scripture, what do we see? Not much. That's what this is saying. Not much. He's saying, we don't know who his parents were. We don't know what tribe he was from. Of course, tribes didn't have them. They didn't have anything to identify when he was born or when he died. And God did that on purpose so that he would resemble the true Melchizedek who would become. So he's actually saying, this is how scripture shows him. He looks just like this. Oh, by the way, we have the fulfillment. <laughs> Here's Jesus. He really is without father and mother as far as his beginning. He was with the father in the beginning <laughs> and he was himself God. That's his point here. I love this because it helps us see how far in advance God plans stuff. <laughs> he knows. So he has Melchizedek show up way back then, 430 years before the law, so that a thousand and some odd years later, they're going to be able to look into the scripture and go, oh, Melchizedek is greater than even Abraham. So Melchizedek must be greater than Moses and the law. And that's exactly what the author wants his readers to get to. So God had written Melchizedek into the scriptures on purpose as a type and shadow so that he would purposely resemble the Son of God who actually continues as a priest forever, a permanent, perfect king priest. Verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoil. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law that takes tithes from the people. And I like how he says it, it takes tithes. <laughs> Hunt you down, make you pay your tithes. <laughs> that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have a descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. This is what the author is really trying to get them to get to. Who and what is superior? Melchizedek is superior even to Abraham. That's a big deal. <laughs> the father of our faith. Melchizedek is even more important than him. And the evidence that this is true is that Melchizedek pronounced God's blessing over Abraham and gave him bread and wine. Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek both spiritually, speaking the blessing, and physically providing provision. Our Melchizedek wants us to be blessed both spiritually and physically. Verse 8. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, of one by whom it is testified that he lives. Our Melchizedek. In the new covenant, all of our giving to God is actually through Christ, according to the order of Melchizedek. The order of voluntary giving to God to demonstrate our faith, our worship, our adoration, and our thanksgiving. 
We give to bless and honor God. We don't give in order to get God to bless us. He has already blessed us with all spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. So much of the church has, even in this passage of scripture, been told, see, you have to give. (laughs) Tithing was instituted before the law. See? (laughs) No, that isn't the point. The point is the superiority of Melchizedek. That's the point. Abraham, he gave not because of compulsion, but because of love. Because of grace, because of gratitude, because of thanksgiving, because he likes God. (laughs) Verse 9. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. The author is trying to cut off any way the reader can try to get out of this reality, this truth, that Melchizedek is greater. So he says, just to make up the point, technically, Levi was in Abraham, so Levi even recognized Melchizedek is greater. Who's the greatest? (laughs) Melchizedek. The question the author is proposing is about which priest and priesthood has the greater honor. Is it our Melchizedekian priest, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, or is it the Levitical priest of the Old Covenant? Well, of course, our Melchizedekian priest (laughs) and priesthood are both considered greater than the Levitical priests and their priesthood because both the priest and the priesthood are perfect and permanent. (laughs) Both are complete and eternal. And that which is complete and eternal is much better than that which is merely temporary, especially when it comes to right standing with God, which is the next point the author brings up. Verse 11. Now, if spiritual perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? I, of course, added the word spiritual here, in front of the word perfection, because that is the kind of perfection that Christ gives us. Christ gives us spiritual perfection before the Father as our high priest. So much of the church wants to read this and think that perfection is something that we create, that we manufacture. Nope. (laughs) You'll be very busy if you're going to try to make yourself perfect. It's a whole lot easier and a whole lot better just to receive the truth that Christ is one spirit with us. He has made us spiritually perfect. There is no defect in Christ. There is no defect in us. We are spiritually perfect the way God wanted mankind to be in the beginning, spiritually perfect. So the question is, if the old covenant priesthood could have given us a perfect and permanent spiritual perfection and completion before God, then there would not have been any need for the new covenant. That's right. If the old covenant actually did what the new covenant does, God wouldn't have bothered with the new covenant. But it couldn't. (laughs) Everything about it was temporary and physical. It never actually worked. Never took away their sins. It never imputed righteousness to them. It never made them spiritually perfectly. It didn't do any of the good stuff. 
<laughs> it was just a picture, a promise that was going to come through Christ. Because of the weakness of the Old Covenant, because it couldn't do what Jesus does, that's why it was always meant to be temporary, and that's what this author needs these baby believers to see. They have stood on the fact that, hey, God gave us the law. God gave us the law. <laughs> we're special. We're chosen. And when God gives you the law, well, then it must be forever. It was forever for them. So that's why when Christ comes along and he's a king and a priest, hmm, <laughs> they had questions. <laughs> Verse 12. For when there is a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. I think I want to write this in the sky for Christians. <laughs> change in priesthood! <laughs> change in law! <laughs> you want to make a Christian really mad? Show them this scripture. <laughs> Most of them get really mad. If you try to say that the law has been done away with, the old covenant law, and this is, remember, these baby Hebrew believers, this is their struggle. We've always had the law. The law is good and holy and perfect. The Apostle Paul said so. <laughs> oh. <laughs> this was a really hard truth for the baby Hebrew believers, even as it is for much of the church today. The old covenant law is actually tied to or married to the Levitical priesthood. You can't separate them. The existence of the law demands a priesthood to facilitate its terms. Here's the law. If you break it, you need a sacrifice. The law has to have a priesthood, a Levitical priesthood. But if you take away the law, um... <laughs> What do we do with all these priests over here? There's <laughs> a whole lot of unemployment all of a sudden. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Without the law, there was no point of the priesthood. Without the priesthood, there's no point of the law. That's the point. So when God does something crazy like, give us a brand new priest, and he doesn't fit back there, because back there, kings and priests can't be the same. They can't hold the same office. So what do we do about this? Let it go. <laughs> the law was basically the terms of their covenant. If they kept the law, they were deemed to be in right standing with God. But if they broke the law, they needed a priest to offer God a sacrifice on their behalf and to cover their sins in order to restore them back into right standing. Unfortunately, many believers today believe that this is still a legitimate process under the New Covenant. When they sin, they believe that they are out of fellowship with God and that God is mad at them, and they need to get busy confessing those sins and transferring their guilt so that God can place their sins under the blood. This is a clear and definite mixing of covenants. <laughs> Mixing of covenants doesn't work. <laughs> and it is most likely what these baby Hebrew believers were still doing because they didn't understand the difference between the old and the new covenant. So they kept mushing them together, <laughs> not realizing that this mushing and mixing of covenants 
only ever leads to fear. Because if you have the law, you have a judgment. You fell short. Now you have fear. Now you have doubt, unbelief, and condemnation. It doesn't do anything good for your faith. In other words, it was messing up their confidence. God would hear and answer their prayers and that he would keep his promises to them. So just like Matt Crouch, their prayers would have been, have we been good enough for you to keep us safe in this persecution? It's okay if we're not. We'll go get some lambs. <laughs> they weren't getting it. They hadn't fully embraced the new covenant. And the truth is, they knew the answer. Have we been good enough? No. <laughs> no, you have not been good enough to earn my protection and blessing. Which is why they were trying to provide their own safety. They knew they didn't deserve it. Yay. <laughs> if you want it, you can have it. But if you think you deserve it, not going to get it. It has to be a gift of God's grace. If they would have just listened to Holy Spirit, he would have told them, no, you're not good enough to earn Father's protection and blessing. But Jesus has, <laughs> and you're in him. So put your faith in him, who he is and what he has done. He has been good enough. And he's tucked us inside of him so that what he deserves, he gives to us. So, in an effort to get his readers to let go of the law-keeping for righteousness, the author points out that God is the one who instituted this new priesthood. It was kind of crazy. <laughs> and that this priesthood is not tied to or married to the Mosaic law. So, when God changed the priesthood, he also changed the laws that pertain to the new priesthood. And that even includes, yep, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments do not belong to the new covenant of grace. Again, you want to make a Christian mad? <laughs> the Ten Commandments are the ministry of death engraved on stones. And those stones belong exclusively to the old covenant. They are not transferable. So we are not under the authority of the old covenant law whereby it can demand that we fulfill it as a requirement of our right standing with God. Instead, we are under the authority and power of God's grace by faith in Christ. Now, these kinds of statements have a tendency to make a lot of Christians really, really super mad. <laughs> because they don't understand that the standards of the new covenant are actually higher than the standards of the old. Because they don't get that, they will accuse us of, you know, promoting sloppy agape. <laughs> when in fact, living in and by and through agape love will always challenge us to keep our eyes on Jesus. Because we can't live the Christ life of love in our own strength. It can only be done by Christ through us. Under the old covenant, it was eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Easy peasy. Everybody can do that. <laughs> but under the new covenant, it's turn the other cheek. <laughs> Love your enemies. <laughs> and here's a good one. Bless those who curse you. <laughs> you know what bless means? Speak well. Do good. 
to those who curse you. Really? <laughs> Only through Christ. <laughs> and that's because the standard of the new covenant is Christ. <laughs> but no one can live up to that standard in their own strength. The standard can only be expressed through the indwelling power and presence of Christ himself. Christ in us and Christ through us. When we understand that the standard for our life is Christ and that he's the one who brings forth his life in us and through us as we cooperate with him, then we can comfortably let go of the old covenant law system for righteousness because it's actually an inferior standard. Living under the Old Covenant law doesn't require faith or love. But in the New Covenant, God says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. Again, he's still working on getting them to let go of that which is old. <laughs> and he's pointing out, he's trying to answer an objection that they might be having. <laughs> Jesus was not from the Levitical tribe. How can he be a priest? Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Now, to us, we're like, big deal. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> We don't really care that Jesus wasn't qualified to be a priest under the Old Covenant. But it was a real concern to the baby Hebrew believers. They were trying to work out the logistics of how what Jesus did fits inside what God had done before through Moses. They were trying to make it fit together. Most of the church is trying to make it to fit together. <laughs> it's like two different games, Monopoly and Clue. You can't just squish them all together and make it work. <laughs> different rules. <laughs> but they were trying to work this out so that they could be convinced in their heart. It's okay to have questions, to go to God. Why is it this way? I need to know. It's thwarting my faith. So in their minds, they thought it was perfectly logical that Jesus should somehow fit in the old covenant, that they should be merged because, well, the new fulfills the old, which is true, but the new covenant is not a continuation of the old. And that's the part they were having trouble with, letting go of the old. The new covenant is completely different from the old, which is why it is so important that these Hebrew believers understand the placement of Melchizedek within the scriptures. It proves to them that God has always planned for a different kind of priesthood, one that would be both perfect and permanent. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Yes. <laughs> Jesus didn't become our high priest in the same way the Levites became high priests. Their position as high priest was handed down through the bloodline of Aaron. But Jesus' priesthood is founded on his perfect, eternal, indestructible, and uncorruptible life. It is founded on who and what Jesus is. He is the Son of God who is himself God. 
He is the word who was with God in the beginning, and he became flesh in order to be able to bring us to himself and the Father by making us partakers of his indestructible life. You have indestructible life. Yes, and amen, we have indestructible life. Where? In our spirit, man. This is so important. So many Christians struggle with, I'm not perfect. Because they look at what they do. That doesn't work. You're only going to believe in your perfection if you keep looking at Jesus. You keep looking to the fact that he has made us one with him. He has given us his indestructible life. We will never cease to exist. We will unzip our earth suit, but we will never die, ever. We have indestructible life. Verse 17. For it is witnessed of him in the scriptures, you are, you are a priest forever. Forever, forever, forever. Forever. And forever. <laughs> After the order of Melchizedek. <laughs> Verse 18. For on one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. And the phrase, a former commandment, it actually refers to the totality of the law. All of the law. All of the law is weak and useless. What? For righteousness. Now, it's good for information. It's good to go back there and see Jesus. It's good to hear God through, but it's not good for righteousness. It's useless to transform us. Transformation is all about Jesus, not about rules. All of the Old Covenant has been set aside. That's what they were struggling with, to let go of the doing to become and embracing the you have become, now do. Verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. We probably should write that one in the sky too. <laughs> the law makes nothing perfect. <laughs> it doesn't make you better. Trying to fulfill the law will not make you pleasing to God. What is it that pleases God? Amen. <laughs> Jesus pleases God. Faith pleases God. Rule keeping? No. Rule keeping keeps you looking at yourself and your own ability to produce fruit. That doesn't work. <laughs> we can't produce the fruit of the Spirit in our own strength. It's Him in us. It's Him through us. The law made nothing perfect, and it still makes nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The better hope. What is this better hope? This better hope is Jesus <laughs> as our high priest. He is the one who brings us directly into the very presence of God where we have unlimited access to him and his goodness permanently. We never leave. We are in his presence forever. Under the old, you never got to go into God's presence unless you were a high priest. We are so blessed with the privilege of God's constant company, God's constant counsel, God's constant power, God's constant goodness. We have a good deal going on here. <laughs> Verse 20, And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. Now what do we know about oaths? When God gives an oath, whatever he's oathing, 
is irrevocable. <laughs> when God swears a no to his word or his promise, whatever that is, it's irrevocable. It can't be messed up by us. And it can't be brought forth by us. It is a work of God's hand. The Levitical priesthood never had such an oath because God never meant for that system to be permanent. So their priesthood was always meant to be revoked and replaced from the very beginning. And we know this is true because of Melchizedek, who showed up 430 years before it. <laughs> Melchizedek had precedence. He's the greater. When Melchizedek comes again, he's still the greater. <laughs> Verse 21. But this one, Jesus, who was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. He didn't just say that to Jesus either. He says it to us. We are priests forever in the order of Melchizedek. We get to minister to our Father and our Jesus. We have access unlimited access to all that our Father is. God made his word regarding Christ as the high priest irrevocable. So Jesus is perfectly and permanently our high priest who brings us into the very throne room of God and heaven and presents us to the Father completely acceptable. Verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. A permanent covenant is much better than a temporary one. Also, it's a better covenant because this covenant is not between us and God. See, that's what was wrong with the old covenant. It was between God and Israel. And that meant it was up to them to bring forth the promises. It was up to them to obey and, and make themselves righteous. It was up to them. And we saw that did not work. <laughs> what we have is a better promise because it is a covenant between God and God. It's a covenant between God the Father and God the Son on behalf of mankind. And we simply enter into this covenant relationship through faith in Christ. So all of the responsibility for our complete salvation was taken up by Jesus and the Father. We've got no part in it. We just say thank you. <laughs> there's nothing left for us to do but believe and receive which is really smart on God's part <laughs> because if we had any part of bringing in our redemption bringing it to pass we'd most definitely mess it up just like Israel did but thankfully we have Jesus Jesus is the guarantee God swore an oath that Jesus would last forever and be our priest forever and he is the one that facilitates and mediates the covenant we pray in Jesus' name. That's a mediation term. We're coming to God the Father not based on how good we are. <laughs> we come to the Father based on how good Jesus is. We don't ask things of the Father based on how good we've been. We ask things of the Father based on how good Jesus has been. We ask on terms of our high priest. And he mediates that which is in heaven and brings those things into our life. A much better covenant. It's perfect, and it's permanent. And so is our eternal life. Amen? Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. Your word is so helpful <laughs> that we can find the truth that corrects the thinking 
that we've been taught before. The truth that reveals that it is all about how good you are, how gracious you are, how kind you are, how loving you are, how accepting you are. That you don't treat us like small children who need spankings. You treat us like sons who are adorned with your very honor and glory. We thank you, Father God, for the fullness of Christ. We thank you for this indestructible life that you've given us as a gift. Father God, I pray that you would help us to remember just how pleased you are with Jesus because that's how pleased you are with us. And Father, we thank you for this truth in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Mark Testerman, Senior Pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 833-632-1315, or you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Great grace, such grace, triumphant grace to you. God bless you.